This morning, I'm going to start on a, on a somber note, um, and maybe at some level, uh, a little bit of an in uncomfortable note, and I, I hope that you'll listen, and I hope that you'll hear the spirit with which I say it, and the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, the somber part is I wanted to touch back to something we talked about last week, and that is um, Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. It's intended to teach us wisdom. And in the biblical context, wisdom always begins, as we made plain last week, Wisdom always begins with God. It really it begins and ends with God, but it begins with God. Multiple times in the Old Testament, we read that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So where God is not the foundation of life, thought, knowledge, or the fear of God is not the beginning of your understanding of the world and your outlook on the world around you, well, that's going to end up in foolishness. And we made the, the point that where God has been deleted from the equation, we end up with this kind of like earth without gravity. Things just kind of float into their own particular course of action, and things become chaotic. We as Christians, and for thousands of years, have believed that um, the beginning foundation of wisdom is, is, is the voice of God revealed in Scripture, and where we have our feet firmly planted there, we understand where, which way is up, which way is down, which way is north, south, east, and west. But where that's missing, then everything starts to come apart. And we also noted that in our current culture, God has been deleted from the equation. Our culture has deleted the Lord from its understanding of reality. And that's why we're experiencing so much confusion on so many different levels. Case in point, and here I'm going to tiptoe out onto a limb that you might not like. Have you been following the uh, confirmation hearings of the new Judge Jackson, who has been nominated for the Supreme Court Justice, the highest court in the land? I followed this one probably more than, um, than any other. And I was, I don't know what the emotion was. I was sad, a little bit angry. When she was asked a direct, direct question by a senator, and the question was, judge, will you define the word woman? And she refused to answer the question. Then she was asked again, define woman. And she said she wouldn't because, quote, I am not a biologist. Which is kind of ironic when I thought about it, because if she was a biologist, she'd have to define it in bi biological terms, which nobody wants to hear. But she refused to answer the question. Now, I understand why. You know, people on both sides are in, 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 intentionally ambiguous about answering direct questions like that. It's just how the game works. But I thought to myself, this is where we're at. Do I really have to be a biologist to understand what a woman is? Did Adam, when he was first created, have to have a biological class to understand that Eve was a woman? Do I have to be a zoologist to know what a horse is or a camel is? It's self-evident and it's obvious, and yet simple things like that are now in question. Again, a sign that things are, have been detached from the anchor of reality, which is God himself. 
Now, some of you probably know the name Albert Moeller. He's a theologian, also the president of Southern Seminary. Time Magazine actually referred to him as the, um, let's see, the reigning intellectual of evangelicalism. Now, whether or not that's true is a matter of debate. But he is a very influential person, a conservative speaker for evangelicalism. He wrote this on Wednesday, okay? And my intent is not to be alarmist per se, but it's in reference to these kinds of confusions that he said this. He said, our, our society stands on the brink of that disaster. The great question remaining is whether there is enough sanity and courage left in our society to avoid the total abdication of truth. It is now plain to see that we face a demand to jump into the deep end of a pool of mass delusion. They're wanting us to jump into the pool of mass delusion. The powers that be, the cultural influences. Whatever it takes, and this is his encouragement, whatever it takes, summon the courage to resist that dive. I've been teaching here for a long time, and I think most who have heard me over the years know that I'm not an alarmist person, generally speaking. And this may sound alarmist to you, but at what point, you know, when the house is burning down and the structure, the integrity of the structure is starting to cave, at what point do you pull the fire alarm and just say, we got a big problem? We have a big problem, and it's swamping the church. And we have to be crystal clear on where is the authority? What do we believe? And by the way, this isn't, you might think, uh, Dan's edging into the political realm. No, that's not true. While it may have a political end to it or a cultural tie, the fact of the matter is these are deeply biblical issues, theological issues, human issues. Who are we? Who is God? How are we created? These are, these are bedrock issues of life. They're not peripheral issues of life. I think two big mistakes we can make with regards to the confusion. The one is to stick your head in the, or head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. As Albert Muller said, it will swamp your boat if you're not aware of it. And the other one is to be afraid or self-absorbed or absorbed or obsessive about it. Because it could create a sense of fear. Oh, that sounds scary. On the brink of disaster. I think Psalm 49 was written with its wisdom to a time and to a people in which evil was flourishing. Perhaps a society on the brink of disaster. Now, we're going to learn the wisdom that it has to offer us so that we don't have to be afraid when we see things come undone. And there's kind of three words that kind of hang my thoughts in this, these four verses we're going to look at. One is fearlessness, the second, foolishness, and the third one, faith. Those, those three words, fearlessness, foolishness, and then faith. This is how uh, verse four starts out. This is after verse one, two, three, and four, where, where the psalmist says, listen to me, everybody, tension, all the people of the world, high and low, rich and poor, this is a message for everybody. He goes on to say, ask this question. And this is the thrust of these verses. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me 
surrounds me. So it's a question of why should I be afraid? Now that little phrase, times of trouble, literally translated means times of evil. And given the context, I think that's exactly the kind of trouble he's talking about because it's the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. So this is a time in which evil is bubbling over, boiling over, it's saturating, swamping the boat, and it surrounds him. That's such a picturesque word, like you're surrounded by an enemy or like the old cop shows, you know, when they surround the house and the sergeant gets on the bullhorn and in a forceful way says, come out with your hands up. <laughs> we have your place surrounded, which means there's no way of escape. You might as well give up. You might as well wave the white flag because there's no getting away. That may be a little bit of how the psalmist feels, only what he's surrounded by are not cops. He's surrounded by people who are trying to cheat. That is by iniquity. So evil is bubbling over. That's what's happening. But the, the sense of it is, he's like, why should I fear when that happens? When I feel overwhelmed, surrounded, when I feel like there's no way of escape, which may be how some people feel in our time. Christians feel. It's like, how are we going to escape this? He asked the question because naturally in times like this, it is to be afraid. That would be the temptation, to, to be afraid, to, I don't know how fear looks like, in, what it looks like in your life. It might, it might show itself in depression. It might show itself in cynicism. But he asked the question rhetorically too, as if to say, why should I fear? I don't need to fear. And he's going to go on to tell us Why? So this, the thrust of this is to equip us with wisdom so we don't have to be afraid when evil boils over or when God has been deleted from the equation of the world. And there's two reasons for this. One is explicit and the second one implicit. The first one has to do with the folly or the foolishness. And the foolishness comes down to this. Trusting in worldly wealth and power. He says, verse 5, why should I fear? I'm going to restate it because it's all one question. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. So now we, we get a description of the culprits. There are people who trust in and boast about their wealth, their accumulation, their power, their position, their social capital, their huge political network. I think all of that could be categorized underneath wealth. There's a couple of things we have to understand about how the Bible views wealth. One is that it, if you're not careful, it can warp you and change you. It can turn you into a person who pushes your agenda for very selfish reasons. Apparently that's what has happened here. It's like the wealthy have trusted in their wealth. They've made it the foundation of their lives. And it's, it, 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 you can understand why the temptation is there. I mean, come on, you can go on great vacations. You can go to you know, the dead fish every night if you wish to, and you can take exotic vacations. and. When you have a lot, and I, you know, here's the interesting thing. You know, I bet most of us could probably name some wealthy people in Solano County. It gives you name recognition. 
It gives you a sense of security. It gives you a sense of worth, identity. And when it, when it, when it becomes this, the, like the foundation of your life, well, then it warps you when you trust in it and when it becomes the, the object of your boast. And most of the time, people don't boast verbally about their, their wealth. It's, it's more posture, attitude, disposition, how you relate to people, how you speak names. Paul said this to his young apprentice, Timothy. He said, this is 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. He says, but those who desire to be rich, notice it's the desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just stop there for this. I'm trying to just unfold the seductiveness and the danger of trusting or desiring wealth. He says they fall into temptation, into a snare. You know, a snare, you almost pick a little picture, a little loop with a, with a, a rope and, and a dog walks in or some, I don't know, something you want to catch, a squirrel. And its leg ends up in the loop and you grab a snare as a trap. And then you drag it. It's like it starts maybe innocently, but you step into the trap and then it starts to pull you under. And that's exactly... What he says is plunge, takes you down into ruin and destruction. Then verse 10, this is key. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That is, they have, in the last part of this verse, they have replaced the foundation of God and they've replaced it with the foundation of wealth. And now they have been plunged down and experiencing pain. But you'll notice, and this has to be crystal clear, Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. Let me say that again. The problem's not with money. It's not with wealth. It's not money that's the root of all evil. What is it? It's the love becoming overly attached Wanting it more than you want other things. Seeing it as the means to your pleasure. The means to your security. The means to your happiness. As soon as it does that, well, then it warps you, changes you. Without you even know it, like subtly, incrementally. This is a true true story. Many, many years ago, and the person I'm referring to is long gone. Had a person come up and and say, I'm going to stop giving, supporting the church, unless you play the songs I want. That's true. And I thought, so you're going to leverage money to manipulate an outcome of the church that you like. You have an agenda, and now you're going to use money to coerce what you want. How is that not selfish? On the grand scheme of what's happening around us, can't we say that a lot of what is coercing the agenda and the changes in culture and the false and fictitious narratives are driven by big money, big tech companies, people in power pushing and excluding if you don't believe it? The same things are in play today as they were thousands of years ago when this person was experiencing all kinds of evils. So it warps you, so you have to be careful of it. 
But he brings out another important facet of it, and that is when people trust in it, it becomes the foundation of your life, your identity, it gives you your sense of worth. Well, then he says it's, it's really utterly and completely foolish because money can't support that. It is a, it is a slave driver, unlike God, who's a, who's a gracious person. You remember your first job? We actually made money. I'm not talking about, you know, chopping wood for your parents. I'm talking about first job for somebody else. I was junior high, and this lady hired me three bucks an hour to come and weed her garden in the summertime in Penryn, little town, foothills. Blistering hot. I said, yeah, I wanted the cold, hard cash, $3 an hour. It took me four hours. And, of course, she was adamant that I had to pull all the weeds out by the roots, not just the tops, right? And we know why. So for four hours, baking in the sun, I was digging those weeds out. And after I had finished my time of purgatory in her killing fields, <laughs> I was, seriously, I was so worn out. And I was, she handed me 12 crisp dollar bills, and I clutched them in my junior high hands, and I felt like I had arrived. <laughs> seriously, felt a sense of independence, like maybe I'm adulting now. Because I have 12 crisp $1 bills. And then you know what I did? I took it to the bowling alley, and I squandered it on the game of Centipede. Remember Centipede? <laughs> and it was gone. And you might say, yeah, that's, that's stupid. You had it one second. You worked so hard for it in the killing fields, and then and, and you spend it on a video game. Yep, I did. I squandered it. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And you might say, well, the wisdom would tell you, put it in the bank. True. But... True wisdom, according to the psalmist, would say, even that's not secure. Look at the folly of trusting and boasting in wealth, which corrupts you. Verse 7, that's where we get the, the, name, the title name of this message. Truly no man can ransom another. Another way of saying is no brother can ransom his brother. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. In other words, literally it means it goes on forever and ever, the price. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. In other words, okay, so people of Wealth and means have power, and they can control, and they can coerce, and they can pressure, and they can change laws, and they can change cultures. But at the end of the day, there's one thing that makes money and wealth absolutely meaningless and pointless, and that's death. Death and judgment. No man can pay the price to live on forever and not see the pit. That is, not go into the grave, not die. And notice that the ransom is owed to God, your creator. No one can pay the price to God to live forever. It's too high. You take all of the global assets and money and pour it into the hole of, of ransom, and it never would even come close. Not only on a financial level, but I think we could also add, by way of the New Testament, the moral level or moral category. How much good do you have to do to pay off God so you can live forever. 
How much moral equity do you need to earn by way of your good life to be acceptable and therefore live on forever? And the answer is, that too cannot be paid by you or anybody else. Bill Gates, arguably a very smart person, very wealthy person, will sit at the bedside of somebody he loves and watch them take their last breath and he will be unable to do anything about it. Completely and utterly powerless in the face of death. It gives out at the end of the day. It's, it, it's like trusting in a, in a vapor or a mist. It will decay, dust, powder, gone. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes reminds us that as, this is Solomon, as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he can carry away in his hand. You enter this world with nothing and you exit this world with nothing. And that's part of the reason, like, you, you know, you don't need to be afraid. Yes, there will always be people who will use power and money and wealth to do bad things. And evil at times will abound, as I think we see. But at the end of the day, it's all going to be stripped away from them. It's trusting in a false god. Which leads me to the faith part. Now, it's not explicit here. It will be a little bit later on. And that is, the opposite of trusting and boasting in money and laying your foundation in the things of this world is to trust and make your boast in God himself and his saving power. The thing is, and I'm kind of jumping ahead and I don't want to, but I have to. There's only one that can pay the ransom. There's only one that can pay the ransom so that you, you can live on and not see the pit, a.k.a. resurrection. It's not you. The real foundation of life is to put God back at the center. If he's been deleted, he has to be once again reestablished as the foundation, as the presupposition, as the assumption of life. And then you're wise. And then you'll learn the reason not to be afraid. And that's the heartbeat of people who know the Lord. They know that God can be the only foundation of your life. To know that he knows you better than anybody knows you. He loves you more than anybody will ever love you. He sacrificed more for you than anybody will ever sacrifice for you. He holds the keys to life and death and eternity. So you have these, the psalmist, my soul, my, my soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Let him who boasts boast in this. This is Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. There you have it. Love, justice, righteousness. Paul would give a distinctively Jesus spin to this when he said in Philippians 3.3, he says, We worship by the Spirit of God and we glory, that is literally boast, in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence, no trust in human things. We boast and trust in Christ, the sure foundation of life. And when he is, when he is, it allows you the freedom to be generous to love other people sacrificially, 
because no longer does money hold the keys to your heart anymore. And you don't have to be afraid because you know at the end of the day, God's going to take care of everything. So what's the foundation you're laying for your life? Is it in the stuff that's valuable in this world or is it in God himself in particular in Christ? Yesterday, I officiated at my third memorial service in a month. And I was there for, it was a two-hour service. And at first, I thought I was going to be completely and utterly exhausted. And at some level, I was, but I was also filled up. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that it's better to be in the house of mourning than to be in the house of feasting. In other words, it's better to be in a place where you can contemplate death and become wise than it is to party and forget and lose your sense of sobriety about what's really going on in the world. And I'll tell you, those times when you're in the house of mourning are clarifying moments when you realize, I only have a little bit of time left, and how am I going to live it? And on what basis am I going to live it? So we said goodbye to a woman I've known my whole life who I had the honor of calling an aunt. She died in October, and they didn't actually have the service until yesterday. And I'm glad. But to listen, like, the testimonies were clear. Jesus was the heartbeat of this woman's life. Constant. And stories were told of her bringing literally hundreds of foster kids into her home. And I met some of those foster kids. They weren't always nice. Some of them were great. And then one girl, she's now an adult woman, stands up and with tears in her eyes says, this woman loved me, she treated me like a daughter, and she taught me about Jesus. And I just, I was so inspired. A, a, a proper foundation. And then I, I remember too that, you know, when I went to college, I didn't have two pennies to scrape together, maybe in my ashtray, but you get an idea. I had no money. And this woman would write me a check. I was going to study the Bible. She'd write me a check every month to go to my tuition. Where, and she's not even my real aunt. Where does this sacrifice and this generosity come from? It comes from the right foundation. She built her life on Christ. And as a result, she bore fruit. So the simple question this morning is, the wisdom of this is that there's two foundations. It's the world or it's, it's the Lord. And you'll know which foundation you're living on by your generosity, by the willingness to sacrifice for the sake of others, by your courage to be able to do something that costs you. That's one of the fruits of the right foundation. The question is, which one are you laying in this world or Christ, and I hope it's Christ, because that will make you wise, not the fool. Father, we ask for your clarity in our own lives, our own hearts, to know uh, which race we're running and which foundation we're standing upon, um, what we trust in, and what our true boast is, and we want it to be you. We want to be able to tell people about your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy and your son 
because we know that what we trust in the most, we will boast about. We pray this in his name.